Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Point of View. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 14th, 2015. About a month ago, my friend Bill paid me a surprise visit from New York. We hadn't seen each other in 15 years, and only had an hour together before his dinner meeting. So we cut to the chase. Last year, Bill was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. He's 42 years old with a wife and two teenagers. After surgery to remove a tumor the size of a baseball, he had some success with chemotherapy. But in April, a scan revealed that the cancer had spread to his lungs and his liver. Give it to me straight, he told his oncologist. She prescribed a new drug regimen, but explained that after that, she had no more tricks in her bag. After Bill left my house, I could barely speak. The prospect of death has given Bill a new perspective on life. His point of view on everything that matters has undergone a radical conversion. That's what end-of-life questions should do, says Atu Gwande in his new book, Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End. Acknowledging your mortality can be a tremendous gift. It reorders your desires. It narrows your focus. It gives you a new perspective that's rooted in reality instead of futile medical fantasies. Next week I'll fly to Ohio for my aunt's 90th birthday. I'm reminded how old age, as well as terminal illness, can radically alter your point of view. There's a big difference between living long and living well, says the Yale surgeon Sherwin Newland in his book, The Art of Aging. Aging well isn't just about eating granola and getting exercise. It's about the attitudes and perspectives that we cultivate, like contentment instead of entitlement, or determination instead of discouragement. The lectionary readings this week commend a new point of view. They challenge us to see and live life from God's perspective, because he works in ways that surprise us. The psalmist prayer is a little schizophrenic. At first he prays, may God give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May the Lord grant all your requests. That's not a bad prayer in Psalm 20, not by any means. I've prayed it for myself and for others many times. But I'm also grateful that God did not give me much of what I asked for. The psalmist then qualifies and deepens his thought in 20 verse 7, 
Some trust in horses and in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. In other words, it's better to trust in God's mysterious and providential care than to try to micromanage my life. It's better to trust God's love than the raw power of chariots and horses. And so these days I acknowledge my ignorance of what's best, and I pray a Celtic prayer. O being of life, keep us in good estate, better than I know to ask, better than I know to ask. And then there's King Saul this week in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul was a war president. We read, all the days of Saul there was bitter war with the Philistines. He was also a war profiteer who after defeating the Amalekites took for himself the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good, says the scripture. And in fact, Saul did this under the pretext of religious piety. Saul conscripted Israel's children for wars. He made them his domestic slaves. He confiscated their lands and imposed exorbitant taxes. And we read in chapter 15, verse 12, he set up a monument in his own honor. This ancient story sounds so modern. Our daily headlines remind us that this is the normal way of doing political business. But that's not the same as saying that God is pleased with our political status quo, either then or now. In fact, divine destiny overshadowed Saul's decisions. History did not turn by his own hand. At God's command, Samuel deposed Saul and anointed a most unlikely successor. David was the last and the least of Jesse's seven sons. The first six sons had all the marks of regal authority. But God told Samuel in 16 verse 7, The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. David looked like a ladies' man, handsome and ruddy. But God directed Samuel, rise and anoint him. He is the one. And so God looks at things differently than we do. He does the unexpected. Ezekiel had a strange vision in the alternate reading from Ezekiel 17. He had a vision of two eagles in a vine and a word from the Lord that was even stranger. In the waning days of Israel's kingdom, hapless King Zedidiah broke his treaty with powerful Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon by turning to Egypt for help. No, said Ezekiel, spurning Babylon might look patriotic and brave, but to resist pagan Babylon was to resist the very hand of God. Ezekiel reads, I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree 
and make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. In other words, things aren't always what they seem. And in the gospel this week, from Mark chapter 4, Jesus says that the kingdom of God grows in inexplicable ways. It's like a farmer who scatters seeds. And then, says Mark, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. Sunshine, dirt, and water. And then, says the text, all by itself, the seed of the kingdom grows. Even a tiny mustard seed produces giants. And finally, there's Paul's letters to the Corinthians, which reveal serious tensions between him and his readers. Some so-called super-apostles at Corinth had backstabbed Paul. They joked that he was weighty in his letters, but lightweight in person and in speech. These charlatans weren't super-apostles, said Paul. They were pseudo-apostles, and the proof was in their point of view. Life in Christ, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, is by faith, not by sight. Contrary to the pseudo-apostles who, quote, take pride in what is seen, end quote, Paul commends, quote, what is in the heart. And he contrasts his perspective with what he calls their worldly point of view. His critics said Paul was out of his mind to live this way, but he was unapologetic. We read in 2 Corinthians 5, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. In his new book, The Road to Character, David Brooks of the New York Times contrasts two perspectives, two points of view for living your life. On the one hand, there are resume virtues and on the other hand, what he calls eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are what you present at a job interview, and it's what we're all conditioned to seek. But they lead to a shallow life, self-satisfied moral mediocrity, and unconscious boredom. Eulogy virtues, on the other hand, are what you hope for at your funeral. Eulogy virtues are those of inner depth of character rather than outer accomplishments like wealth or power. Brooks says he's proposing a countercultural point of view. It's not unlike the readings this week. In fact, it's the authentic faith perspective that I heard from my friend Bill in my living room last month. For books this week, I review a brand new book called Less Medicine, More Health 
Seven Assumptions That Drive Too Much Healthcare. The author is H. Gilbert Welch, Boston Beacon Press, 2015, 218 pages. H. Gilbert Welch is an academic epidemiologist at Dartmouth Medical School and a leading expert on what might be called minimalist medicine. It's a subject that he's written about in two previous books. In 2006, Should I Be Tested for Cancer? Maybe not, and here's why. And then in 2012, Overdiagnosed, Making People Sick in the Pursuit of Health. American healthcare has many problems, but in Welch's view, the central problem is that too much medical care has too little value. Over-medicalization is not only wasteful, in many cases, it's harmful. We've overstated the benefits of medicine and ignored its dangers. Welch doesn't blame his fellow doctors, the insurance companies, policymakers, or even the malpractice lawyers. He's more interested in our underlying cultural assumptions that drive patients and their families to believe, wrongly, that more medicine is always better. His book challenges seven of these cultural assumptions and offers in their stead what he calls seven disturbing truths. For example, not all risks are equal. Not all risks can be lowered and trying to do so can sometimes even increase medical risks. Or again, there's a big difference between managing a problem and fixing a problem. Between raw data versus useful information. Newer versus better. Or doing everything possible and trying nothing at all. Welch writes with wit, wisdom, and self-effacing candor. At heart, he's a statistician, so for him, the truth-telling of randomized trials is the gold standard. He acknowledges that his subject matter is deeply personal and contingent upon personal values. He draws upon his considerable clinical experiences to tell good stories. He also writes about his own medical choices, about tests, scans, and screenings, and why he made those choices. In the end, Welch proposes a radical alternative to conventional wisdom. We should not equate more medicine with better health. I enjoyed this book so much that I recommended it to my own primary care physician. Once again, H. Gilbert Welch, the title, Less Medicine, More Health. For movies this week, I review a title called St. Vincent, 2015. Bill Murray playing the role of a saint? Yes, and not just any old saint. In this movie, St. Vincent is a Vietnam vet, a curmudgeon, foul-mouthed liar, gambler, and a chain-smoking alcoholic. 
His bank account is overdrawn, and his pregnant girlfriend, Daka, played by Naomi Watts, is a Russian stripper. When Maggie moves in next door, Vincent babysits her 11-year-old son, Oliver, but for a price. Oliver needs a man, too, since Maggie is divorcing and he gets bullied at school. So, quite naturally, St. Vincent teaches Oliver to fight, takes him to the racetrack and the local bar, and introduces him to the ways of the world that he knows so well. This self-serving act to earn a few bucks turns into a tender friendship. At his Catholic parochial school, the Jewish Oliver knows just whom he'll nominate for his school project called Saints Among Us. And his reasons for doing so are surprisingly persuasive. Bill Murray, Naomi Watts, and Melissa McCarthy, all starring in the movie St. Vincent. And finally, in keeping with our theme of a new perspective or a new point of view, we've posted a poem by David White. The title of the poem is called The Opening of Eyes. That day I saw beneath dark clouds the passing light over the water, and I heard the voice of the world speak out. I knew then, as I had before, life is no passing memory of what has been, nor the remaining pages in a great book waiting to be read. It is the opening of eyes long closed. It is the vision of far-off things seen for the silence they hold. It is the heart, after years of secret conversing, speaking out loud in the clear air. It is Moses, in the desert, fallen to his knees before the lit bush. It is the man throwing away his shoes as if to enter heaven, and finding himself astonished, opened at last, fallen in love, with solid ground. David White, The Opening of Eyes. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June the 14th, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.